Hello and welcome back to The Modern Indian. This is the second episode in our monthly series of yoga. This episode we talk about the origins of yoga, the rise of yoga in the US and cultural appropriation. And to talk about it, we have our resident yogi Palak Patel from The Uncommon Coach. And after the episode, do check out Palak's social media. Her handle is at The Uncommon Coach and I highly recommend it. So let's begin. Hey Palak. Hi, how are you? Good, good. I'm super excited about this episode. It's the second dose in our series. How are you doing? I'm excited to talk about yoga and its history and how it's changed to what we see today. Me too. Like, it's funny because we were talking about, uh, you and I were talking about, um, you know, it, it, how you go to yoga classes. And we talked about this in the previous episode. Um, and everybody knows what it is right now. But the origins of it, where did it begin? And all the misconceptions we have over it, all the uh, cultural thing we have on it, we're not really clear as to where it started. So Mm -hmm. I'm so excited to talk to you about it. Um, So I guess we should start by talking about the history of the origins of yoga. So take it away. Yeah. So one of the most ironic things about the history of yoga is that we think about it as this popularized, mainstream, trendy practice. And what started as something that was very secretive, very exclusive, and actually only limited to men. Really? Yeah. So they originally the yogi masters and the people that you know could access the text were people who could read Sanskrit, and the only people in India who could read Sanskrit were Brahmin men. And so the practice was only when it was originally designed, it was really only for men, and it was for Brahmin men in sort of this pursuit of of spiritual knowledge and as a part of their religious practice. So it's funny to me how it started from there. And now we see in modern day that most yoga classes are like women. Uh, <laughs> we're not Indian. <laughs> I mean, talk about the origins of patriarchy as well. Yes. And so <laughs> the, and then there's certain, and I've been in classes where there's certain poses where I've had teachers be like, you know, this, you know, this hip movement or this hip opener really wasn't designed with a women's anatomy in mind. And, <laughs> and I'm like, you know, until like I've had these conversations with certain teachers where there's modification, you know, because some teachers are very much like, this is the posture, this is how it's done, this is how it's always been done. And there's other teachers that are like, yes, but when these postures were designed, you know, they did not have the women's anatomy in mind. Um, they did not have that sort of complexity when, when these poses were designed it were really for men wow yeah so like the you know the yoga sutras and a lot of you know even the bhagavad gita you know which which talks about yoga and you know this idea of the union of the soul and sort of the consciousness all of these sacred texts were all written in sanskrit so the only people that were able to access it were a people who could read at the time which again were always limited to to brahmins and, and higher caste individuals and then within that group it was the men who practiced this and so it was only until you know at least in the US in the 1900s and even much later where yoga really became accessible to everyone but what was the time frame when it started in India like do we know this information like when did it start in I India mean, that's- itself 
that's the part that it's you know there's many different accounts and it's like it's hard to say when but i mean there's 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 texts that really credit lord shiva as sort of this creator of yoga and that he was the one that taught you know parvati like the poses and like yoga as a way to achieve enlightenment and this like you know higher consciousness so there are a lot of different accounts but you know predating you know written texts so oral tradition that's been passed down um from people. And so what I think is interesting is how yoga made its way to the U S. Yeah. So you said 1900, which is surprising because all we know, (laughs) we know it from the hippie movement, which was in 1900. So So tell me about how. Yeah. So I recently read this biography about a man who his name was Pierre Bernard, but his nickname was the great Ohm. Um, All right, then. And he grew up, you know, in the in the Midwest and happened to come across through his path of life, a Syrian Indian um, teacher who had mastered Tantra yoga. um, And so he studied with him and learned Hatha yoga. And he was the one who really popularized in the US. And the most interesting part is, so he eventually made his way to San Francisco. And then Eventually, he settled down. Most of his most of his yoga empire, if you want to call it, was based in New York. And so, what the interesting part is is that yoga was very much looked at very suspiciously as like this alternative, occult, like, or oh, they were they worshiping the devil. There's you know hypnotism. People are like you know being brainwashed, and so there's all this stigma around it. And really, it was only people like very elite parts of, and this is during the nineteen, you know, not early nineteen hundreds, during the nineteen twenties, during the Gilded Era, where there's a lot of wealth, a lot of you know high society, and they were the ones that would like secretly and privately take yoga lessons with this guy um, because they were interested in learning about, you know, they, there were whispers about Eastern religion, Eastern tradition, and were curious about it. And this person really was you know, the the kind of gate holder to that knowledge to this group of individuals. Yeah. So and and the and when I was reading about, you know, this this guy was at one point, you know, a millionaire and he his empire was funded by the Rockefellers, right? And when you think about the Rockefellers as a family, you know, as an American institution, you when you think about that name and what it represents in our society and culture. And then, you know, and again, it was very secretly like they were giving money and going to his retreats and like studying with him. And then when it came out, there was, of course, there can never be a yoga story without a scandal. Of course. When all the scandals came out, they disassociated with him. And, you know, that kind of led to his downfall and so forth. But the interesting thing is, is that, again, we think about yoga as this like thing that everyone does, men and women, very popular, very trendy. But its origins really started very secretive and very like very much like a high society um, like practice. Like it was something that was only limited to the rich and famous. It, the a very surprising thing you said, mentioned before is that it it actually came to to San Fran first, which is the West Coast, which is now mm-hmm. the hub for yoga. Well, not hub for yoga, but it is more popular in the West Coast, and um, the lifestyle sort of supports it. And then, but you're saying it actually established the whole thing in in New York, which mm-hmm. the and I guess 
I guess it it, it's, it makes sense in a way because uh, in New York it's so fast paced the 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 lifestyle. So I guess it was more appealing to kind of take a step mm-hmm. back and and kind of practice yoga. So I can understand it in that way. But I mean, if you look at it now, San Francisco and not just San Fran, but the entire West Coast, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, it's like it seems like it has shifted and made it into onto west coast and kind of stayed so it has changed a lot so uh like originally what you were saying about uh it being a little bit more secretive and very high class society but now it's like accessible to everybody um pretty much everybody wants to do it or learns or wants to learn how to do it so tell me more about the change like that shift that has happened so that was specifically like he really focused on hatha yoga and tantra and then i would say the second wave of yoga came to the U.S. under um, Krishnamacharya, which had very famous uh, students such as BKS Iyengar, who's credited to being like the father of modern yoga, Indra Devi, which by the way, she was born Eugenie Peterson, who was Russian, um, and Kapabi Joyce all studied under this one person, and they all kind of created their own practice lineage out of his teachings. And that's really like, you know, and then that's when the Beatles, you know, went and studied um, transcendental meditation, um, the hippie counterculture movement, you know, everything that was happening sort of was everything culturally that was happening to the U.S. sort of fed it, it fed into this. And this idea of like exploring alternate states of consciousness, whether it was through drugs, meditation, yoga, everyone was sort of interested in learning about new things other ways of seeing the world, other philosophies, religions, traditions. And so that was sort of the second wave of yoga. And that was really, that was really a much different style, which Mm -hmm. was very much on Ashtanga, Vinyasa yoga, which, you know, now when we go into studios and we see flow classes, power yoga classes, that's really a product of this second wave. Whereas the initial wave, which Hatha yoga and the Tantra, there was very much an emphasis on studying the text And so what I think is interesting is that it started off with, you know, these high, like I mentioned, the high society individuals that were interested in yoga, they wanted to learn Sanskrit. They wanted to learn the text. They wanted to study the text and they wanted to translate them because they felt that the text really had the answers to like inner happiness, peace, you know, enlightenment and, you know, how do you connect to a higher purpose? And then it really shifted into a much more physical practice. So I think it's interesting that it started off with people being very interested in the text. And then now we've gone completely away from that. And it's really just about the physical practice. That's true. I mean, I the, the, thinking about it, the first part of it, the, uh, how do you say it? The Hatagna? Yeah, uh, Hatha Yoga. Hatha Yoga. And so that um, is interesting because it's not, to us now in this uh, age, we think that is more of meditation and not yoga. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it goes hand in hand, but mm-hmm. uh, the, the actual text form of it, practicing the, uh, the, the script and everything, to most people, that's not yoga. That's more meditation. Uh, but it is part of yoga if And so I think, again, it's interesting how it started off with like high society. And then it was really like the counterculture, the youth, the people who are sort of fighting against, you know, the capitalism and wealth and the rich and famous. And so you see both from like a class perspective, the shift happening. And then you also see the gender sort of shifting where it was, again, in India, it started off as this male Brahmin only practice now in the US, both men and women practicing. So you see those two shifts. And then you also see, again, studying the text, studying the philosophy, the tantra, all of that, and then just really just 
now it's becoming this physical practice. And so one of the things that I think is interesting around now, there's a lot of dialogue around cultural appropriation. We need to like take yoga back to its roots. I think that there's a lot of complexity and a lot of interesting uh, conversations happening around this topic. Actually, that is something I would really want to know more about the whole idea of cultural appropriation, because you're right, a lot of people are like, oh, no, we should bring yoga back to its roots and how it started, Um, the the experience, the physicality, the the mental state, everything. And um, again, when we talk about the roots of of yoga, it did start in India. So when you say cultural appropriation, I want to know more about that. Yeah. And so I think that there is sort of this, there's this backlash and this conversation happening around, well, yoga came from India and now what we're seeing in mainstream studio gyms is this sort of like watered down, westernized American version of yoga. However, I think going back to its roots is just as problematic as how yoga is currently. So we think about the origins, right? There, it was very much exclusionary. It was limited to upper, you know, like upper caste Brahmin and men only. And then when we think about yoga now, it's like it, when we think about the face, quote unquote, of yoga, it's usually we think of an affluent white woman in the suburbs wearing her Lululemons and going to a class. So <laughs> yeah. Thing that like both the origins and where we are today are both a bit problematic. Um, and then one of the things that I think that for me has been interesting as an Indian American yoga teacher is that there's back and forth of like, why are you saying downward dog? Why aren't you using the Sanskrit term? Why aren't you saying oh. it's like, well, when I think about it, it's like asking someone who's like an English teacher to just teach in Latin. Like we all know the you know, the ancient texts and a lot of it, a lot of, you know, what was written was written in Latin, but like who studies Latin? Who speaks Latin? (laughs) Who in India like speaks and studies and writes in Sanskrit? Like mostly people who are Brahmin or like, you know, that are priests are, you know, very, very specific people. And so to me, it's kind of crazy to expect like someone who's like, you know, I live in America. Most of the students, I would say all the students that come into my class speak English for the most part. Um, So for me, to sit here and be like, oh, I'm going to teach using Sanskrit names only or that I should be expected to do that, I think is a little bit crazy. But I mean, uh, to be honest with you, it's not just for people there. Even we in our like our generation don't know Sanskrit. Uh, the, uh, I mean, oddly enough, when you mentioned the, the, the Sanskrit or the Hindi term for downward dog, I couldn't relate to that. And I'm an Indian. So to say that, uh, you know, even I would prefer the the other term because it's more easily uh, understanding for us. So um, as much as I love the original word, because it sort of has a more deeper meaning to it, but um, even I would like to know the easier term so that I can understand and practice better. So it's not just for for the non-Indians, but it's for us as well. Yeah. Yeah. So if we want to, so that goes, that goes to my point is that if we want to make yoga accessible to all, right. And if we're teaching in the U S which is, you know, our, our primary language is English, then, you know, I think saying downward dog and saying Cobra and, and using English translations of the asanas is, is, you know, makes it more accessible. Uh, and then other people would argue against me and say, you know, no, it's, you know, it was, it was written this way. So we have to do things this way. But I think that, you know, as I mentioned, like the actual asanas themselves need to be modified for different bodies, different genders, different, you know, people. Yeah. And then I think the way we teach also needs to be more inclusive and be more, 
um, be more accessible, right? And so I yeah. think that those are things that as, as a teacher myself, I keep in mind when I teach my own classes. Yeah, I mean, and I've seen that. I like when uh, the instructors will be like, this is the position, this is how we do it. But if you're not able to bend your knee or if you're not able to do this, it's fine. Just leave it as it is and you're not judged on it. And I think that is, um, as a teacher, I think that's very commendable because then you're making everybody comfortable in the class you're teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of cultural appropriation, back to that, uh, I do think, like I went back to India and I was uh, talking to some people and they all had the same opinions. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, bring it back to India. Like it's Indian, you know, they're kind of wanting to own um this practice which which i get it which i do understand why because it started there but it's all to share it's a practice if somebody else likes it and if they want to modify and do it to better for a betterment for themselves i think it should be fine but um do you think it's problematic that this this desire to return to its roots I think that, I think there's a balance. I think that it makes sense to sort of honor, like, yes, this came from India. There have been many people who have studied and sort of have mastered a lot of these practices. I think it's important to acknowledge that. I think for me personally, the problematic, uh, the problem resides in when I see people who are not Indian use Indian culture to sort of like build a brand and business and make money off of it. And like, for example, like I talked about this, one of the students, uh, Indra Devi, like this is a very common practice where I see non-Indian yoga teachers taking on Indian names. Oh, wow. Is that, is that something that you are like, what's your opinion on that when they do that? I I think that that is problematic. So (laughs) I think people are, people give themselves, spirit names or my guru called me this or I'm gonna you know get rid of my very boring American sounding name and I'm gonna adopt an Indian name that to me is problematic because you're basically just taking somebody's culture and putting it on because you think that it makes you more authentic or it makes you you know a more uh what's the right word like a more uh more privileged or more respect in teaching yoga by like taking on and like adopting an Indian name. But it's kind of strange, don't you think? Like if they are taking an Indian name and uh, it kind of loses the authenticity right there. Well, <laughs> so. Experience is like I remember one of the first classes I went to. I you know when I first started practicing yoga, I was like you know I I, I want to look for an Indian teacher, you know. Um, and then I go through the class schedules and you see a name that you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to go to this guy's class. And you show up to the class and it's a white dude. And you're like, what happened? Like, I don't <laughs> like it, I'm confused. And so I, think that when, I think that that to me is very problematic where, you know, I think anyone who wants to practice and teach yoga should have the right and have the freedom to do so. But when you start, you know, wearing i've seen you know people who practice kundalini yoga who wear turbans uh i've seen like the name changes being very common and like that to me like is cultural appropriation where it's like you're basically like putting it on as if you're putting on a costume right that's yeah yeah now i'm authorized to speak on this topic because i look and sound and have this name and i've been to india and have a guru and do all these things you know and that to me is problematic like if you're a person who has a genuine interest and you've studied and you practice and you kind of like walk the walk then there's no need to do any of that right so how does it work the other way around you know when we adapt adopt something from here and because uh, you know that people do that too. People change their names to to white 
uh, you know, more Caucasian names just to sort of fit in. Um, I don't approve to that either. I think that, so it, it works both ways. You know what I mean? So not just in yoga, generally, I've seen people at workplace will change their names to more uh, Caucasian sounding names. And I guess they want to sort of fit in and sound like they know uh, the cultural aspect of it. But in my opinion, it, it sort of loses the credibility. It loses a little bit of authenticity. So um, I do agree with that. I think I like if when uh, people sort of embrace the, the cultural aspect of yoga, and then uh, they show that by learning the art and learning the culture. An example of a, there was a studio that I went to, and they claimed that, you know, in the beginning of the class, they were talking about like, yoga is not a religion, blah, blah, blah. And then at the end, they finished the class with some chanting and they're saying Om, Om Namah Shivai. And I'm like, you're basically chanting to Shiva. Which is <laughs> God. So like, you know, get your story straight. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's like, you're, you're not only appropriating it, you're like appropriating it inaccurately. Inaccurately. <laughs> you're, you're, saying these, you're saying these mantras, you're saying these chants that have very clear religious tones to them and you're not acknowledging it because you don't actually know what the words mean. And to me, yeah. that's very problematic and very discomforting as a person who was raised Hindu and you walk into a class and you see a white person, you know, singing Om Namah Shivaya. You're like, what is going on here? Like, am I a temple? <laughs> like where you know it's to me that like when I find myself in situations like that or like you know I went to another studio where they had a painting of Ganesh on the wall and people are doing headstands and putting their feet on the wall so it's like, again you're like you're including you're basically appropriating not only cultural appropriation but like religious symbols and figures and then people are you know and my friend who came with me is you know she is more religious than I am. And I just was like, eh, it's just people doing stupid things. But she felt very, very upset and very offended, which I understood. And so she was like, you can't put your feet on the wall when it's a picture of a deity. And so I told her, you know, you should talk to the yoga studio owner. And you know what their response was? They told her to fill out a card and put it in the suggestion box. No way. (laughs) Yeah, that's going to help. And so one of the topics I wanted to talk about is like as studio owners, as teachers in this business, because it is a business, like what can you do to make sure that you yourself or your teachers are not, you know, kind of guilty of cultural appropriation. And then sometimes, you know, you make mistakes. So like, how can you hold yourself accountable and responsible for that when you do something and you don't realize it, like in that example of that teacher who was like chanting, you know, if I go up to you and have a conversation, the problem is that most teachers will either like get a, get defensive um, or just like flat out deny it or just like completely dismiss you. So it's like, uh, that's like causes even more problems where it's like someone from that culture is saying, Hey, uh, this is what's happening here. And I want you to be aware of it. And when they're not receptive to those messages, that's incredibly problematic. How do how do um, yoga instructors, the teachers, the the institutions where it's been taught, how can they help? Uh, what can they do, and what shouldn't they do? Again, I should I think they should ask like whatever you know. If you're teaching a class and you're using phrases in another language, do you know what they mean? If you're going to include like 
uh, you know, Ganesh or Buddha or any sort of like religious figures or symbols in your studios, ask someone from that tradition and practice, you know, what's the proper way to do this? Like another example I'll give you, and this happened twice. One time I went to a studio and they used, there was a Ganesh statue that used to, that, I, that would sit at the front desk and it happened to be really hot that day. So they decided to use it as a doorstep. Oh no. I gave them feedback. I was like, you know, the deities are supposed to be like eye level or higher out of respect, right? Like you don't want the deity to be at the level of your feet. Right. Uh, And they didn't change it. And then I stopped going there. And then another example was I went to yoga studio and in the bathroom, there was incense lit and there was a Ganesh statue in the bathroom. And I told the front desk, I'm like, you can't have Ganesh where you shit. Like, that's not okay. And immediately, that person went in removed it and they like sent me an email afterwards and we're like we're sorry like blah 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 so here you see two different examples of someone like you know with my friend who were like oh put it in a suggestion box and then someone actually taking responsibility and following through and like changing their behavior once they are once they get the feedback that that's not okay that's absolutely true i actually really like that example because it's true i've seen a lot of places where it's not even a, about yoga i've seen a lot of places where they would use um a, a buddha or a ganesh because mm-hmm. it, or om i've seen a lot of ohms um in the wrong places and i always want to say like i'm like i know it looks cool and it looks really um like you have this whole hippie thing down but it's not it's a it it means a lot to to Indian and I'm not religious but I know Mm -hmm. that people who are more religious like for me I will disregard it but I know like when my mother sees like when my mom comes to my house and if she would look at something she'll be like you cannot have your puja on the floor level you should need you need you need a stool too because in Indian culture you do respect um deities and gods and goddesses on eye level or more as you said and so I've seen this places other than yoga studios as well that they they don't know but I, they know it looks good but they don't know the meaning behind why we do certain mm-hmm. things and yeah exactly and I've seen people do it in a respectful way where it's like you ask questions you kind of err on the side of like I don't know I'm gonna I'm gonna find out more uh but and it's like a constant uh, studying and practice to learn more and so I think that with yeah, with some things just looked at as like, oh, well, if I like change my name to like Guru Dev, like I'm going to get more Instagram followers because people will think I'm like authentic and legit. And I, you know, I'm going to post pictures of me like meditating in the Himalayas. And so it's like, <laughs> And you see white faces, you know, kind of like taking on this culture, this tradition, these names. And then for someone like me who like grew up like with people like mispronouncing my name, making fun of my name, it's like kind of like a slap in the face. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. So uh, now that you practice yourself and um, when you go out there and when you teach and obviously you have more um, experience in terms of and obviously cultural, you're right, you're in the right place. Uh, what's your experience in your teaching? Like when your your students, I mean, how do how do they uh, react? Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, give me their perspective. Like when I when I teach my meditation classes, I always start off with like this is an ancient tradition that came from many cultures, some of my own, some of that were not of my own, and this is my personal sort of practice. So I always like acknowledge that you know there are many different people who have contributed and created and perfected this. You know whether it's a breathing, whether it's pranayama, whether it's meditation. So I always start class by acknowledging that, and then also making sure that people know that like I'm not speaking on behalf of this religion or. 
where I'm not speaking on behalf of this guru or this lineage or this type of yoga. Like this is my personal philosophy. This is how I like to teach class. And then I always ask students questions, like if there's any questions, concerns, anything you're not comfortable with. And I always make sure that I have that information up front so that there isn't, you know, that miscommunication or that feeling of like, I'm uncomfortable in this environment. I don't feel comfortable teaching that or doing that or moving in that way or saying this thing. Um, and so I think it's always being aware of yourself, how you present yourself, how you kind of credit the people who, who have come before you, mm-hmm. uh, and then create an inclusive space. Do you think the teacher should also uh, tell the students uh, the meanings, like the way, like if say, suppose you are chanting, do you think you should tell the students what it means? Absolutely. And I think everything should be optional, right? So if you want to close your class with a, with, with three rounds of ohm or whatever it is, like if you feel comfortable participating, feel free to do so. This is what the meaning is. And if you don't, you can just, you know, sit and breathe and, and listen with, with the class. So I think it should always be an option and people should only do what they feel comfortable with. And I've been in studios where they're, again, like the irony is, is that like, it's, it's, kirtans and bhajans that are very much like hindu and and i'm like i don't feel comfortable doing this you know this is not the place or the space for me to do this and i'm not going to do it and i get like glares from teachers who are like oh this is a collective everyone should be participating and it's like no like i always and i've had many situations and i'm not going to get into all of them here where teachers have made me feel uncomfortable forget appropriation it's just like they overstep their boundary to say like i'm like the teacher and you have to do what i say give me and an example like, i want to know like give so me one was, this was like this was like so one teacher i was you know i stayed in like a lunge pose for like a like maybe longer like the class moved on to a different pose and i was like staying in the lunge because i was like oh like my this just feels like a nice relief and the and the woman was just like um i don't even remember the exact phrase she said but she was like why are you doing that like we've moved on um, I wanted to keep this pose a little bit longer and I'll catch up with the rest of the class when I like, you know, when I, when I get there, like, obviously I didn't say that cause I was completely caught off guard in the middle of my yoga practice, but I gave feedback to the the studio afterwards to say, cause the teacher I think left right after class, but I was like, that's not appropriate. Like you don't like bark or like yell at a student, let alone in front of every, and then I've had teachers where like, I, I, I guess I was doing a pro I was doing a pose wrong and they called me out in front of the entire class. I thought yoga was supposed to be all inclusive and do what feels good to you. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently this isn't. You know, I have students, you know, I, I will explain a pose and they're doing it incorrectly and you walk over to them to say, Hey, you know, make sure your knees align here. I don't want you to hurt your back and like blah, blah, blah. Um, and to me, that's, you know, you don't call out a student in front of the entire class. You don't embarrass people. Like that's just, you know, that's just basic human, I feel like interaction. Like you don't want to embarrass anyone. You don't want to shame anyone. For any class. That's not just for yoga. Like I go, I go for a workout and I, uh, mine is also like a, um, it's structured. I go to orange theory and I love that my trainer would come all the way to me. So the music is blaring. So nobody else can hear it. And he'll come to me and be like, 
you know, if you bend your knee just a little bit more, it'll be just a better for your, it'll be better for your back. And he'll give me this little feedback. I'm like, oh, okay. So he'll make me do the right way. And I've actually had a, a really great experience one time. I'd never found my instructor again because I think she moved. Uh, but I remember her doing yoga with her and she knew that I was struggling because my body wasn't moving the way everybody else's was. And so she came right and she stood right behind me and she wouldn't even say it. She'll just help me out a little bit. Like she'll put her hand on my hand on my waist and she'll be like, you know, if you just move just a little bit, it'll be better for you. You don't need to go all the way. Don't follow the class. Just follow your body. And I love that when she said that she's like, just follow your body, see where it goes. Don't push it too much. And I think that it sort of make keep it, it. I was so at ease then because I was worried that everybody else is, can do the pose and I can't. And so I think it's so much more important for teachers and yogis to sort of know that it's an uncomfortable and it is something that students struggle sometimes. So, and I think hands-on adjustments has been a huge area of concern and sort of liability for for teachers. And so one of the things that I think so I personally practice Ashtanga. Of yoga and Joyce, who's you know who who really popularized this this form of yoga, was a person who believed in very strict alignment and like aggressive like adjustments. Like yeah. people told stories about like they like dislocated ribs and like pulled muscles because the the teacher forced them into an asana that their body was not prepared for. And uh-huh. so I think that this. Sort of- has been normalized and that there are a lot of these teachers and I had one teacher who I was doing a a twist and they twisted me too far and I had to go to the doctor and like my back was hurting for weeks afterwards and after that I was like I do not allow hands-on adjustments I mean I don't offer hands-on adjustments like I will show I will model I will demonstrate but ultimately I think that's a respect that should exist between teacher and student I guess yeah Um, you know your body better than I do. And I know the asana and I can, and it's my job to modify it and adjust it and make it accessible for you. Yeah, because my teacher, I think uh, for me, it was a little bit different only because she knew that I was pushing it harder than I should have. And she recognized that if I I go any further, I will hurt my back. So I think she, what she did is she held me back and said, don't push it too much. You're going to hurt your back bend a little and just like let your body go uh, in the normal uh, rhythm as opposed to following the rest of the class and kind of pushing it harder. But you're right. It is a liability issue. Like if you push it a little harder, you can hurt somebody. So um, I totally understand that. It is, um, the cultural appropriation is one thing, but this um, aspect of us not knowing where it came from is mm-hmm. an, a whole other thing, a other topic. So yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just an, it's an interesting conversation that's going to continue to evolve. But ultimately for me personally, making it accessible to everyone regardless of like gender body abilities all those things is is to me like if yoga was designed for liberation and for people to to kind of free themselves of suffering both physical emotional mental psychological then we need to make it accessible to everyone right whether it's teaching it in schools teaching in hospitals in the workplace and we you know we can't if, we, if that is the ultimate goal, then we kind of need to strip sort of these like religious exclusionary under, you know, origins of it so that it can be accessible to anyone. Absolutely. And I think it's important to sort of learn the origins a little bit for the yogis and for the instructors, especially. And because once you do know where it came from and the origins and how it started and how it went from where it is to where it's now, it'll also help with this whole uh, cultural appropriation issue we just talked about. So I agree. 
the irony is, is that like the practice is designed to evolve. And so it's like, obviously times have changed. So the practice needs to evolve with it. And so the, the fact that people think that something that was designed like centuries and centuries years ago should be brought back to today to me is like, it's crazy. Like why yeah. would want to do that in any other, like any other field or any yeah. other <laughs> oh yeah hospitals uh, we didn't used to have hospitals you're gonna have childbirth at home yeah so I <laughs> people think that oh yeah back then things were better and it's like no I think that that's a misconception and I think that there's ways that we can evolve and and improve the practice and make it better make it more accessible and to me that's that's ultimately my 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 philosophy that's great. But uh, Palak, thank you so much. I, I really loved uh, today's topic. It was so fun to talk to you about how it came from. To be honest, I didn't know. Uh, I haven't read much about it, but I know that I'm slowly moving towards uh, a mindset of sort of understanding how yoga and meditation works. And I know I, because it is uh, coming from our own country, so I should know this, but uh, <laughs> it's funny how we're just expected to know it, but it's glad that I'm so glad that you actually mentioned how it came from, where it came from, how it started, um, and, and uh, how it has moved towards what it is right now. I think I do enjoy uh, what it is right now. Yeah. So Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. And we're going to come back next, uh, next episode on this series, and we're going to have a brand new topic to talk about. But until then, if you haven't heard uh, the previous episode please do go ahead and uh, subscribe on apple podcast stitcher or wherever else you get your pods and listen to our series and once again thank you palak and we will talk soon